They spent a lot of time teaching him how to escape a tail while he was walking. But, you know, you got to think, he, this guy was out in, in, in L.A. Nobody ever walks in L.A. So, Welcome back to The Live Drop. I'm Mark Valley, And my guest is John Pumfret, the author of From Warsaw with Love, Polish Spies, the CIA, and The Forging of an Unlikely Alliance. His book starts out in Los Angeles with a particularly effective Polish spy who'd penetrated the aerospace industry. And along with a history of U.S. and Polish collaboration dating back to the colonial period, Pumford identifies the threads of eventual cooperation between our intelligence organizations. I was interested about how Poland gained entry into NATO in 1996, along with Czechoslovakia and Hungary. And John's book covers little-known clandestine operation undertaken by the Poles to get Americans out of Baghdad. He reveals the diplomatic maneuvering with both the United States and the Soviets that led to the Poles' entry into the alliance. The results of this initiative can be seen in Ukraine today. Had the Poles not actively sought membership in NATO decades ago, we might be looking at an entirely different landscape in Eastern Europe. Begin transmission. It's kind of a soft question leading in, but I'm just wondering how you got into the topic and what, what interested you in this. So I was uh, posted to Eastern Europe uh, by the Washington Post and in, in starting in 92. And mostly the job was basically covering the collapse of ex-Yugoslavia. You know, most of my time I basically spent in Sarajevo or around in little other towns in Bosnia. But the Post still had a bureau. We had a house in Warsaw. So that's where ostensibly I, I quote unquote lived, even though I spent most of my time in Sarajevo. But nonetheless, um, and then I would be let out of Bosnia every six weeks or so for just for a little to relax. And I'd go back to Warsaw and do pieces about, you know, Poland's transition to a free market economy, to a political, to a, you know, a liberal political system, et cetera. And in 94, I started picking up these rumors that the Poles particularly Polish intelligence, had done this operation for the United States in which they saved a bunch of Americans in Iraq. Right. And as time passed, I sort of confirmed it and wrote, I wrote a story about it. It, was, it ran in the Post in January of 95. And that kernel of the story has always stuck with me as perhaps the kind of the central, could serve as a central piece of a book about, a broader book about you know the relationship between Poland and the United States. But there was clearly a backstory. And then there was a story that happened subsequently. And it's always stuck with me. And a couple of years ago, the Poles who were involved in the operation, and I always kept in touch with them, basically reached out to me and said, you know, we actually kind of need you to write this story because we need to remind our government that we actually served the free Polish state, uh, like we served the communist state as professionals. And we need that recognition because we're getting, we're getting kind of menaced by the current government. And so pensions were being taken away. Right. Their pensions were being taken away. And and for some of them who had made the transition to capitalism, they didn't need those pensions. But for others, and there are hundreds of others, they really needed those pensions. I mean, and they were taken they were, they were dropped below the poverty level. And so there was motivation on their side to reach out and to cooperate, because as you know, spies don't really willingly tell their stories generally right. unless authorized. But these guys were wanting to tell the story and there were a few ex-CIA folks in the U.S. who were willing to help tell that story as well. The agency itself was not very cooperative, but the former CIA officers were extremely cooperative, those who cooperated, and right. really helped me to tell the story. And then the Polish government declassified a whole bunch of documents around this period of time, 89-90, when the Americans reached out to the Poles 
And so with those documents, it was just extraordinary because then you could kind of go back to the people who participated and ask them for the narrative and ask them to fill in sort of the blanks that were, you know, that, that naturally the documents are going to have. And so that was a, yeah. a really interesting process. Because as you know, like people only really speak to your level of ignorance about a situation generally, right? Right. I thought it was wonderful how you could kind of break down that meeting in Lisbon where um, uh, Palovich or the, Ameri- the Americans, American CIA kind of gave a cold pitch to the Polish intelligence in Lisbon. Yeah. Right. And then, and then you flip around, you can kind of get their, their perspective. Exactly. I couldn't, I couldn't believe he was saying all this to the Portuguese intelligence. You, right, know, you could right. understand why it was happening. Exactly. So, and, and that was really helpful to have those, those real time documents that were written at the time. So this was, um, I could have read 600 pages of, of this if you'd kept going. <laughs> I mean, it was, there was, uh, I really, I really enjoyed, uh, first of all, you know, the story of, um, you know, Marion Zakarski in, in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, he lived in Marina Del Rey. He played a lot of tennis, befriended William Bell. You know, the story of this guy and his personality, his tradecraft was kind of engaging because you never really, you really expect Cold War spying to be going on in Los Angeles as much. I mean, there's the Falcon and the Snowman and there's, you know, some other instances, but uh, I don't know if you wanted to to talk about uh, Zakarski a little bit. I mean, everybody said his tradecraft was so great, but it just seemed like he was a very sociable person. I'm just wondering what specifically about his tradecraft really, really stood up besides his ability to engage people. Well, that I think was like really his strong suit. I mean, the guy was extraordinary. He was a magnetic personality. Uh, you know, he's you know six two ish, good tennis player, good looking, but not like in a way that puts people off, but a way that pulls people in. And so his ability to insinuate himself as a friend to all sorts of people was extraordinary. And it, and, and even amongst the Polish American community, uh, which was very active in Los Angeles because they were so deeply involved in the aerospace industry. Cause at the back in the day, you know, the aerospace industry was based in LA. Right. And there were a lot of literally, literally Polish rocket scientists and fuel engineers based in, based in LA. And while anti-communist, many of them had fled communist Poland, they were extremely open to Zaharsky and right. befriended him. So much so that his company, Polamco, was asked to bid on the construction of the B-1 bomber, even though it was illegal for American firms to contract with Comic-Con or Eastern European firms in the manufacturing of any American weaponry. <laughs> but but Saharsky was an exception because oh he's just a pole right that was the attitude that a lot of Americans had about Polish people so if you if if it was a Russian or a Bulgarian there probably would have been a lot more you get know, their hackles up a little bit right to get the hackles up. but but a Polish dude it, he just kind of slid through and with his personality his ability, ability to gauge people he just was not threatening at all. And he, that was an extraordinary gift that he had. It was, he was a natural because he wasn't a trained spy when he came to the United States. In fact, when he went back to Poland on home leave and they broached the idea of him spying for the Polish government in America, he was desperate for some type of training. So they gave him kind of a crash course in a safe house in Warsaw while his, his wife went home to her mom for a while on, on basically how to, how to escape a, a tail, et cetera, which was kind of funny because they spent a lot of time teaching him how to escape a tail while he was walking, 
But, you know, you got to think, this guy was in, in L.A. Nobody ever walks in L.A. So, you know, it was some of, some of, the, some of the lessons were inappropriate. But nonetheless, you know, um, he had to learn it from, from ground zero. But he had this natural affinity with people. And so that just really helped him out a lot. I thought it was interesting that uh, at least in, in East Germany, if there a lot, oftentimes if there were spies, the East Germans were controlling the KGB sort of got involved or they found out about it and they wanted to sort of co-opt it. Was there ever any attempt to um, for the KGB to, um, I don't know, to kind of work Sikorsky and operationally with with them or was it just always, did it always just stay on the Polish side? So that's an interesting question. I think that from the actually, actually the 70s, the mid to late 70s, the civilian intelligence services of the Polish communist government was actually relatively independent from the KGB. On the other side, the military intelligence, Polish military intelligence was basically run by the GRU um, and a lot of cross-training and officers seconded here and there. But the Poles set up their, kind of reformed their civilian, civilian intelligence agency and they created this intelligence training center in Stare Kukutie, which is out in the, the Masovian Lakes region of Poland. They created that intelligence center and they, when they founded it, basically, the, one of the Politburo members came out and gave a speech and basically said, this is a Polish intelligence service for Poland. And so the stuff that Zaharsky dug up was via the civilian intelligence agency, and that was shared with the KGB. But the KGB never ran him. It was, he was always being run out of Warsaw, which and the, and, and the Poles were very particular about maintaining control over their agents that they ran and not sharing them with the KGB. And it irritated the Russians, the Soviets, but that was the way the Poles wanted it done. And they were good enough that the KGB was happy to share the fruits of their uh, espionage without really interfering too much. You know, I interviewed someone on my show who was kind of working the rat lines and trying to get things in to get, uh, you know, Sam Sadat and materials into Poland during the, you know, after the crackdown in the 80s, late 70s and early 80s. And uh, he talked about how, there was so much kind of almost family institutional knowledge in Poland about how to, how to operate, you know, clandestinely or covertly. Like uh, you also mentioned that Marian Zakarski's father had um, served in the underground. Yeah. It's almost like everybody's grandparents had served in in the underground. I'm just wondering how much of that Polish knowledge was passed down from, uh, you know, family member to family member. Yeah. I I think to a significant, for uh, for those who, who were, you know, and, and basically every family in Poland had been touched by world war II. Right. And so there was a natural affinity to that type of undercover work and, the interesting thing that the Polish intelligence discovered in 89-90 when it made the transition from communist Poland to free Poland was that a lot of the skills that the solidarity activists had been had picked up kind of dodging Polish intelligence were very useful to them when they entered the Ministry of Interior's intelligence agencies, right? So they could, you know, and, and there was an interesting culture that was formed between the ex-communist spies and the post-solidarity intelligence officers who were employed by the Polish state. And it was really sort of this interesting melding of two cultures, which was masterminded by this guy named Gromosław Czempinski, who is sort of one of the, the sort of the doyen of, of, the, of the, the, the modern Polish intelligence agency. I was an engineer. So obviously, Kosciuszko's monument was a, right. you know, a significant place. And we all knew about how the 
you know, the polls had helped. That's uh, because goes bridge, which is not too far away. Yeah, he was he was an example of the engineering skill that that the polls have traditionally had, and also their cooperation with with Americans. You know, I was thinking about that. You're tar- you started talking about the history of Poland, and when I went there and I traveled there not too long ago, I was really shocked that not really like, shocked isn't really a word to say, but uh, but Poles think of themselves as Western. Yeah, and uh, I think from a kid growing up watching the Olympics and seeing you know the Poles being part of the Warsaw Pact. You know, I didn't really expect that. Yeah, there's a historical alliance and some historical similarities. They probably had the first democratic institutions or at least constitution that was kind of quashed at the end of the 1700s. I mean, who knows? Poland could have been the strongest democratic example in the world if they'd had some more um, protective geographic features, you know? Right. Maybe if you wanted to just talk a little bit about that historical alliance similarity and alliance. I mean, there's always been this, as you said, this affinity. I mean, Kosciuszko was the the longest serving foreigner in the Continental Army. Uh, Another poll ostensibly saved George Washington's life because he led a cavalry charge against the British that allowed for Washington to have a a successful uh, retreat at the Battle of Brandywine. So the polls really played an outside role in, in our Revolutionary War. And the affinity between the people was an example was the fact that Poles had that modeled their constitution on the American constitution. And the United States also, you know, during the 19th century when Poland basically didn't exist, was, was a supporter of the idea of Poland. And the 13th of, of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points at the end of World War I was a independent Poland, a sovereign Poland with access to the sea. So the Americans were always sort of on Poland's side and Poland was always on the American side. And so the Cold War happens. And to your point, you know, a lot of Americans thought of Poland as being part of the East Bloc. But at the same time, there was a, there was a significant section of our kind of heart when it came to Poland was that they were sort of part of us. And even so that when um, Jerry Ford had a debate with Jimmy Carter uh, in when was it when during that presidential campaign after after Nixon quit, Ford at the debate basically said, well, Poland is part of the part of the Western Bloc, and, and actually, that that factual miscue hurt his chances. Right. But nonetheless, it's an ev- it's evidence that Americans really never had had the sense of the Poles being our enemy. Right. And given the fact that there was so much Pol- Polish immigration to the United States, you know, Chicago being you know the most populous Polish city in the world, ex- next to Warsaw, et cetera, et cetera. And so nobody really expected the Poles to be our our enemy. And when we faced off against them. In the Cold War, the, the CIA in particular was very successful at garnering Polish agents uh, in Poland. They did a, a not so not, not actually not so much in Poland. Most of it was done outside of Poland, but a lot of Poles were working for the CIA secretly. So much so that when Palavich, uh, the CIA officer who led the charge to to open up the Polish intelligence agency to cooperation with America, when, with, with America, when he went back to Poland in the 90s to have discussions with Polish intelligence on a routine basis. His agents, people who had worked for him in the 70s and the 80s, were sitting across the table from him, and he had to pretend not to know intimate details of their lives because they were now representing Poland and no longer agents of the CIA. But, oh, my God. Which, which, you know, it was sort of it gave him a being a good officer. He, he, he didn't reveal that he'd known these people because they worked for us, but they no longer were doing that, apparently. But nonetheless, it just gives you an idea. The CIA really had penetrated Poland 
And at the same time, the CIA also had deep links into Solidarity because they were so supportive of the Solidarity trade new movement during their difficult times with, with the Polish communist government. Americans, at least the CIA, made a conscious decision not to provide any lethal aid to, to Poland, um, you know, after martial law, before martial law and during that crackdown. And um, I'm just wondering, do you think, and, and, Ron, and to the earlier question, Ronald Reagan also more or less ran on you know, solidarity and freedom fighters and, uh, you know, supporting Lech Walesa and so forth, which kind of brought that into America's consciousness that, you know, Poland desired to be free and so forth. I think that helped. But I'm also just kind of wondering if that was a similar situation, do you think the United States would have sent troops to to Poland back at that time? I mean, if um, if the Soviets had cracked down instead of... The Soviets had um, launched an invasion in Poland in during the Solidarity Crisis, 80-81. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't have sent troops into Poland. We very well would have bolstered our um, deployments in West Germany, which still existed at the time. Right. But that would have caused a huge crisis, clearly. And it's difficult to say what would have happened. The interesting thing at the time is that subsequent release of classified documents from the Soviet Union have shown that the Soviets weren't interested in deploying forces into Poland. And maybe Putin, if he'd been in charge, would have. But Gorbachev wasn't interested in fighting fighting another war uh, in, in Eastern Europe, right? Uh, clearly. Even though Jaruzelski, the kind of dark sunglassed sort of icon of communist Poland, has always claimed or had, had, had always claimed that he saved Poland from Russian or Soviet intervention. The reality is the Soviets weren't interested in intervening at the time. Wasn't Stalin that had said something like getting a Pole to be communist is like... Right. Yeah, the Russians also always had a difficulty convincing the Poles to be communists. Stalin had two quotes about Poland. One was, you know, getting Poland to embrace communism is like saddling a cow. Just right. didn't work. And then the other thing he used to call them radishes, which was, you know, red on the red on the outside, white on the inside. So the the, the Russians and Poles were had a cussedness to them that other uh, nations in Eastern Europe really didn't have. And partially because of the power of a sort of a separate locus of of authority in Poland, which was the Catholic Church and the, also their peasantry. And so Poland never went through a massive collectivization campaign like the Russians did in, in slaughtering all the kulaks. Right. Mm-hmm. Pol- Polish still had significant amount of private farming and they also had a significant portion of their economy was a gray economy, which was involved in just, you know, sort of buying and selling and trading and some small scale manufacturing as well. And so they always had this kind of core of both a privatized, partially privatized agricultural sector and a partially privatized industrial sector, which allowed them once the changes happened to build off that and to go through, they went through a rocky transition, but nonetheless, it was better than a lot of the other Eastern European countries. I mean, in your book, it more or less makes a case for how, in effect, Poland earned its membership to NATO um, uh, compared to some other countries. But I, you know, I was also reading this and looking at okay, and Czechoslovakia joined and Hungary joined. Was there any similar efforts by or similar contributions that the Czechs or the Hungarians made? I think that's a really good question. I think that there were some joint operations with Hungary, but Hungary was a little bit more reluctant to really stick its neck out. Right. And I think that the Czech Republic joined, I think, partially on the on the sort of founded on the moral authority of Václav Havel, their president, the poet president of the Czech Republic. But the Poles really drove that bus. 
they were really the mastermind, uh, the theoretician, the leader of those three nations as they joined, the, the first three Eastern European nations to join NATO. And they made a conscious decision to shame effectively the United States into allowing them to, because, because when it began under the George H.W. Bush administration, there was a lot of talk in Washington that they didn't want to expand expand NATO. And no, James, not, uh, James not Baker, one inch. Not one yeah, inch. not one inch. James Baker said it to Gorbachev. Bush said it to Gorbachev. Baker said it to the uh, Shevardnadze, his Russian counterpart. And so, um, once you transition to to Clinton, um, the 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 polls really and and and, and it, within the Clinton administration, there was significant opposition to NATO enlargement as well. Strobe Talbot being a perfect example. Um, was opposed to the idea because he was kind of a, a Russophile, if you will, and really believed that the relationship with Russia was really the key relationship. And we didn't want to start by alienating them. Also, Ambassador Jack Matlock, a U.S. ambassador to Russia at the time, was a, was a strong opponent of NATO enlargement. And so the polls really felt like they had to shame Washington into doing this. And they did it partially by leveraging the Polish-American vote in America, but at the same time, on the battlefield, if you will, the polls felt that they had to show that they not only should get into NATO, but they had to get into NATO because they just were so damn good. And that's what this whole uh, intelligence cooperation was about, because that was their strong suit, right? They didn't have much of an army, but they had really good spies and they leveraged that. They also leveraged something against the Soviets, which I thought was pretty interesting, is they they basically said to the Russians, what are we supposed to do if Germany unifies? We don't have any defenses against them. Yeah. So this was this interesting game. And, and actually, you see a parallel between what's happening now. You see how the Germans are kind of somewhat supporting Ukraine, but not really. And they're very, you know, like, like the only aid they've given Ukraine is they sent a batch of helmets to the Ukraine. So right. the Germans have always had this relation. Often in the German DNA, there's this desire to kind of have a good relationship with Moscow. And you see this happening in the late 80s, where the West German government begins these back channel negotiations with the Soviets over some type of deal that perhaps would allow for German unification at the same time that um, the Soviets would be uh, given economic support. So the Soviet Union would be supported German reunification on the, on, on the proviso that the Germans would be neutral and that the Soviets wouldn't really necessarily. And, so, and, 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 and then the issue then would be what type of Germany is this going to be? Right. Uh, and where is it going to stop? Because at the end of the Second World War, the Poles lose a huge amount of territory to the east, but they gain a little bit of territory to their west. But the Germans had never recognized that swap. And so would the Germans be then demanding that territory in Western Poland and Western Poland back? Or, or who would be the guarantor? And under this this kind of proposed idea, it would be Russia that would guarantee the, the, the Western borders of Poland. And the Poles didn't want to, basically the Poles argued with the Americans, if this happens, right, we're going to be stuck forever in Moscow's embrace. And so the Poles put really forcefully against that in order to force the H.W. Bush administration to lean on the Germans to recognize the Western border, which ultimately happened. But the Poles discovered these secret negotiations before 89, right? right. And they, and, and this is in, within the intelligence agency, and it's a fascinating part of the book because you see these communist intelligence officers seeing these kind of secret back channel talks happening between the Soviets and the Western, Western, West Germans. 
and saying, this can't stand. These guys are, are, are basically intent on screwing us again, right? I mean, you right. know, 1939, the secret talks between Molotov and the, and the Germans, et cetera. And so they basically put out this campaign of propaganda exposing these talks, right? And at the same time, announcing to their Western interlocutors, hey, if something happens, we would actually ultimately like to be in your camp. And that was fascinating because this was even before people in the solidarity movement had started to kind of consider who are they going to lie with, you know, in the future, what type of country will Poland be? Now you have these ex-communist, well, these communist officers going, all right, if, if, we're de- if we want to deal with the security of our state, ultimately we're going to have to become either the ally of Moscow or the ally of America, but we can't be in this intermediate zone because then the Germans are just going to eat us alive. Poles are masters at self-preservation. Well, well, wouldn't you be if you had a country that basically had no, I mean, they have no mountains other than the Tatras down in the south. It's basically flat, right? And so that's good for cavalry. It's good for tanks, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that was like, wasn't that Kuklinski's, uh, you know, Kuklinski's motivation for for spying or kind of turning and giving information on the Warsaw Pact is that he looked at the Soviets plan and said, wait a minute, they're just going to kind of ride over this. Right. And uh, they've got nuclear weapons. They had nuclear weapons and Polish territory. They said, wait, they're just going to basically concede Poland. Right. They basically a- let Poland become a nuclear wasteland. Right. 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 That, that's that what was, the plans were. Yeah, that was your plan. That was your plan. And so, I mean, that's how, that's how he came to the United States. He was we didn't approach him. He approached America. In your book as well. You, uh, I wish all books were like all like kind of, you know, nonfiction his historical analysis. Uh, look, I'm not really an academic, but I, I kind of wish books like this were all had a thriller embedded inside them. You know, <laughs> and uh, which which sure it does. And for me, it was a particularly engaging thriller because um, I had a uh, a professor. At uh, West Point, who was, um, a f- he'd been a former foreign area officer. He was my history professor. Lots of advice was kind of a mentor to me in some ways. And uh, he was also a, um, like a, like, like an East Asian foreign area officer, right? He spoke Chinese, Mandarin. And uh, so I'm reading this book and I'd known he was in the Gulf War, but I'm reading this book and I'm like, about these guys who got trapped behind uh, after the, uh, after the invasion. I'm like, John Feely? <laughs> like, wait a second i didn't i hadn't read this story i hadn't heard this story yet so i have never you know, a nonfiction book has never been such a page turner as, as that as that section of your book right there to find out yeah. what had happened it's uh yeah that was a that was a fantastic story and you had heard about this in 1995 and you wrote about yeah, it so i heard about it in 95 i never knew who the americans who had been so in so basically in nine to, to sort of go back in 1990 polish intelligence sends Gromosov Chempinski down to Iraq to exfiltrate six Americans. And John Feely, then a major, was one of the exfiltrated Americans. And Feely, so in 95, when I wrote the story, I didn't know who the Americans were. And finding them was, was pretty difficult. Although one of the Americans, Fred Hart, had written something for, I think it was the Army War College about his experience in Iraq. Right. But he, he took out all the Polish connections, how they were exfiltrated, et cetera. But he really described it very well, his experience. He kind of everything but the skullduggery and the and the the intelligence aspect of, of his journey out of Iraq. And I found Fred and and then Fred told me Feely and I found John Feely just in the last couple of years. And their stories were just really fascinating, partially because of from my perspective, the 
kind of the back and forth and the interactions between them and Chapinsky and then the former CIA station chief from, from Kuwait, who was also exfiltrated, and the, the dynamics in that group of, you know, Chapinsky finding them, collecting them, briefing them, literally clothing them in Polish uh, uniform, uh, Polish right. workers' uniforms, right. and then giving them Polish passports, at which point he gets them out of, gets them out of Iraq. But Feely was, Feely was particularly important because he had worked with, for Schwarzkopf on the plans. Basically, Schwarzkopf at a certain point asked him, this is before Iraq invades Kuwait. He said, what's the worst thing that can happen in the Middle East? Right. Cause the Berlin Wall has fallen and everyone's trying to figure out a new mission for themselves, you know, across the national security structure. And CENTCOM is, is not an, an exception. And, you know, the, the Iraq Iran war had basically just ended and Feely is tasked by, uh, Schwarzkopf. It's kind of figuring out what's next and Feely kind of to the shock and dismay of a whole bunch of people in the, in the intelligence uh, section of the CENTCOM basically says it's not going to be Iran. It very well could be Saddam invading Kuwait. And everyone thought he was nuts. Yeah. And then Saddam starts to mass troops on the border. And Feely is tasked with figuring out how to war game the situation. How are we going to propel or remove Saddam's forces from Kuwait should he attack? And so at, at, a, at a certain period of time in Florida, Feely is looking at the real time and giving intelligence reports about the real time situation on the border. At the same time, he's war gaming what we would do should Saddam invade. So it's kind of like the war game and the reality are happening at the same time in his head, at which point he's then ordered by Schwarzkopf to travel to Kuwait, and he has all our plans in his head. Right. And so if he had fallen into the hands of the Mubaharat in, in Iraq, that would have been quite an intelligence disaster from, from the U.S. perspective. So he had to get removed quickly. It, was like, it would have been like Lawrence Arabia getting tracked, getting captured by the Turks. Probably, Yeah. I mean, he was a history professor at West Point, but then he went on to um, work at Fort Irwin at the, uh, which was sort of the kind of practical think tank of, of you know, tactics and, and strategy at, at, during the airland battle days. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was an op four, he ran the op four. So they had so many iterations of, you know, what works and what, I think they were working at like the brigade level um, operation. So yeah, he would have been the guy to, to ask. And he was also somebody who definitely would think outside, or he is someone who thinks outside the box. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was, it was really great to kind of read that. That's funny. Read that story about him. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's in your future? What are you planning? What are you planning now? I mean, can you imagine what our, our situation, how our situation would be so much more complicated if we hadn't allowed these, these nations into, into NATO? So I think that what Poland did in the early nineties and sort of basically shaming America into letting it into that club right was has probably helped everybody in, in Europe and really and, and it's sort of one of the unrecognized stories of of the 1990s that that Poland's basically sort of focus and their single-minded focus I mean they had one ambassador for six years in, in Washington uh, at the same period of time when they had like five or six governments in, in Warsaw because they basically were so focused on this goal. And in the end, this goal, I think, has helped everybody's security in Europe, specifically the Germans. And so the fact that the Germans are not at the forefront of standing up for Ukraine is a little bit disappointing because they were such a big beneficiary of NATO's expansion back in the 90s. Yeah. It really saved them their security, right? Because it extended their sort of secure security 200 kilometers to the east. Right. So uh, I think it's sort of one of the, and we don't give Poland enough credit, clearly. 
for the work that they did back in the day. Yeah, but also their 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 support and and you know, I mean, the fact that that's a lot of that's a lot of space. They've given all of Europe, all of Western Europe, a lot of strategic space. And if they were in the middle, if they had some type of kind of local security situation or an even closer relationship with Russia, we we would really be in a very more much more difficult position than we are now. Yeah, in the past five years, there's been quite a, quite a bit of like joint joint exercises with Americans and Poles. Yeah, I mean, I mean they just posted online. You see that, and, and people have said there's four thousand troops, American troops in Poland. I think they're actually closer to eleven thousand. There's a lot of deployment there. Um, none of it's quote unquote permanent, but it's basically semi permanent. Right. And it's not simply uh, infantry. It's also there's an air wing there and the navy's there as well. In addition to the special operations, which has a lot of joint exercises and joint operations with their Polish counterparts. Great to have you in the live drop. Thanks. Thank you. That was John Pumfret, author of From Warsaw with Love, Polish Spies, the CIA, and the Forging of an Unlikely Alliance. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider a one-time PayPal contribution to the live drop. The link is in the show notes. Keep listening. End of transmission. Transmission.